telling you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. And this is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commands, the one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk as he walked. Now, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word that you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray this morning. Dearly Father, we come before you thankful that we get to uh, still gather together um, at a distance. We thank you that we come together and we have families and, and kids screaming this morning and proof that there continues to be life in our church and we thank you and praise you for that, Lord. And this morning as we continue in First John to see what he is writing, why he was writing, who he's writing to, would you give us the ability to sit back and listen? Listen not to words of man, but words directly from you this morning. And let us listen in such a way that we're able and willing to carry it out. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, as we, Pastor Steve has talked about in the last couple of weeks, the context of John writing this letter is that there is new doctrine that has risen up that contradicts what the Bible says, which actually came from inside of the church. This Gnosticism, this desire uh, for hidden knowledge that God somewhere is hidden in some way, somehow we can do things, we can manifest ourselves in such a way be enlightened so that we can then know God. And John uh, clearly emphasizes in chapter 1 the, the importance and weight and seriousness we need to give our theology, the weight we need to give to what we actually believe, that not everything, though things may sound similar, we need to know what we know. And that's the majority of what he's talking about in, in the chapter 1. And he's just as, as serious about theology as he is in the application as we see uh, here in chapter 2. And there are two facets to what John is really covering of how to know God, okay? So if Gnosticism, the knowledge, the, the, the desire to find God through some hidden knowledge, John is going completely against that and telling us exactly how we can know God, and it's clear, it's plain, it's made available to everyone. And, and the first thing about knowing God, uh, it, which John talks about in, in chapter 1, is he starts with the person of God, which is Jesus Christ. That this can be, this cannot be uh, finagled, this cannot be twisted, like Jesus is God. Okay, and salvation uh, comes through trust in Jesus, the man, which is God. 
And he emphasizes trust and faith over this logic that uh, Gnosticism or these other ideas emphasize. And and John continues, and he defines part of that relationship we're supposed to have with Jesus is that he advocates for us. We see that uh, word used a a few times uh, just in these first two chapters. And he advocates on the Father to the, to the Father on our behalf, and that can, relationship continues. It's not a one-shot done, move on. He continues to advocate for us. He emphasizes, again, Jesus is God. He's not part of God. He's not a form of God that God decides to use at any given moment. He is fully God. Jesus is, in fact, the way that we know God. And that's the premise that John leads. Like, it's not something hidden. You don't go meditate a certain amount of hours. You don't check these off your list. You don't get a necklace and play with it to know God. You know God. You go to Jesus, and you know God. It was, uh, it was a said, there's a man. I'm going to butcher his name so bad. His name is, I think his name is Tabiti Anyabwili. I practiced that so much, but it didn't sound like it. He is a... He is the uh, senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Grand Cayman and uh, the council member, one of the council members uh, with the Gospel Coalition. And for this thought of like going to the scriptures and being able to know Jesus, he says to receive the word of life is to embrace Jesus as he offers himself in the gospel. And the phrase as he offers himself in the gospel is incredibly, incredibly important. We must receive Jesus, this word of life, the eternal son of God, not as we imagine him to be or as we like to think of him or as someone else believes him to be. We do not truly receive Jesus if we do not accept him as he defines himself. And that's where 1 John 2 starts to talk about the evidence of knowing Jesus this way of coming to Jesus in the relationship that we're supposed to have with him the way he lays it out and not what we want it to be, which is incredibly difficult But there's because there's so many religions, there's so many thoughts that seem like they can mesh in and they even fit your personality a little bit better, but we're supposed to conform to this. He's not supposed to conform to us. Amen? Okay. So going back just to, to verse one, he says, my Little children. I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. Right off the bat, this is the, the, the initial premise. So you're not wondering, who's he talking? why is he talking? You? So you stop it. Okay? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. And John appears, he starts right here, you know, he, he goes, digs into what they need to know, what they need to believe and be unified in believing in chapter 1. And here he goes into uh, this more of affectionate uh, introduction, okay? Because sometimes when someone tells you what you need to believe and that you're believing the wrong thing, it's discouraging, right? And he goes in, little children, my, 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 my kids, my affection, the ones that I, I love, um, which is a big deal here because this is exactly how we need to deal with people, Right? We need to tell the truth, but it needs to be coupled with love. Doing one or the other is easy by itself. But John here understands that you need to have both. And as John addresses uh, in the earlier verses, he points out that Christians need to keep the reality of sin up. He talks about sin because we need to talk about sin. He, Jesus advocates for us because of our sin. Okay? 
And uh, he uses this word in keeping Jesus relevant and keeping sin relevant. And and it's a word, atoning sacrifice, also known as this big fancy word, uh, a propitiation. And in this, this one word, there's, there's kind of a, a three-faceted understanding uh, for it so that we can break it down so it's not just such a scary theological word. What, the first part of propitiation to understand is it's, it means to pacify someone who has been injured, offended, insulted. So someone acting as a propitiation is pacifying someone who has been offended. Second one is to forgive, and especially when God is the subject, God himself is providing the way for reconciliation of relationship. So far, this is extremely appropriate with what Jesus does in advocating on our behalf to the Father. And the third part is to perform some deed by which the taint of guilt is removed. And this threefold understanding is incredibly appropriate for what Jesus does. He does all of these things, and he does all of these three perfectly in satisfying God's wrath and being the one to do the satisfying. And he continues to advocate on our behalf. Now, to, to, to make this even simpler, hopefully, uh, I'm going to refer to William Barclay. He, he's a Scottish theologian, and I don't agree with everything that, that he puts out there, but in, in terms of this definition of understanding propitiation, I think he gets it really right. He says, the great basic truth behind this word is that it is through Jesus that man's fellowship with God is first restored and then maintained. It's not a, it's not a one, one night, one fix, um, and then it's done. He, can, he, he gets you there and then continues to keep you there. Hmm. And this is, this is important because it keeps both Jesus and sin in the forefront. If we pay too much attention to one and not the other, it actually diminishes and belittles the other. Okay? Uh, the reality of our sin needs to be uh, upheld so that we can appreciate and love and adore and find our hope and joy in the fact that Jesus took care of all of that. We, if we just ignore sin and it's gone and we, we lie and say we don't sin anymore, that we never really did sin, I, I didn't really do a whole lot of bad things, that belittles the work that Jesus is, in fact, continuing to do in your life. And, and we see this, uh, how it's exemplified. Uh, David writes... Uh, in, in Psalm 51, he, he's crying out. He's, he's in a pit of despair. He says, wash away my guilt, Lord, and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. But the sin being before him catapulted him straight to God. Okay, you have the reality of, of Jesus as your advocate and the reason why he is your advocate before you. Uh, an old, old, old from the Middle Ages scholar named Beta the Venerable says this, that the Lord intercedes for us, not by words, but by his dying compassion, because he took upon himself the sins which he was unwilling to condemn his elect for. We can keep our sin before us because Jesus advocating continues, and there's a reason for that. Amen? Amen. Let's keep going. This is how we know that we know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is perfected. And this is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he 
walked. Now, I don't know if you're finding this and just reading this this morning, but in studying it, that there's, at first, some people could even say it's an inconsistency. John is, is talking and making you feel really kind of nice at the beginning of this. Listen, I know you sin, but Jesus advocates for you. Uh, there's a, your sin is always there, but Jesus is always there. Sin is always there, but Jesus is always there. And it could be also comforting and um, uh, lovingly being put forth by John that, listen, family, this is messed up, but Jesus makes it okay. And then he goes right into saying, but if you continue to sin, you're a liar. So there's this, there's this tension here, which is not easy to overcome because it doesn't seem like right off the bat that there is a way to overcome it, that the struggle is always going to be here. And this tension is, how do we reconcile the encouragement of Christ as our advocate when we sin and the command to stop sinning? How do we understand and recognize and accept, okay, we, because we sin, Jesus goes to the Father on our behalf. Okay, so, so in the long run, in the grand scheme of things, we're okay because of Jesus, but we're also told plainly to stop sinning. So what do we do with that? No, really, I'm asking because I, I don't know. No, we're going we're to look into this a little bit, Okay. We need to understand the truth uh, written here in John uh, as he starts that first, Jesus is real, Jesus is fully God, and he has made a relationship available. Now, that understanding should not stop there. That's where people may be hung up, especially reading scripture. We read that, we understand that Jesus is there, he's fully God, he's fully man, I'm not going to question that. He goes to the Father on my behalf, bam, I got it, I'm good, woo, going to heaven. But that is not where John stops. And if that's not where John stops this morning, that is not where we're going to stop. He continues to go into um, what, I, what I just, in my mind, think of a threefold reality that needs to take place for authenticity. Okay? And this threefold reality is follows. There's a need to know God with a desire to love God that leads to the conviction to obey God. You, you take one of those out and the whole train derails. If you take one of those out, you don't actually have what you think you have. John, John Calvin wrote his thoughts on this. He said, no evil has been more common in all ages than to vainly profess God's name. All three of these components need to be present in order for it to even be real. Because there's a danger that we can do one and two and not three. There's a danger that we can have, have such a desire to know God, and then we decide we're going to be really, really loud about our desire to love God. And then the obedience, yeah, hopefully that'll take care of itself. There's a danger there because it leads others to do the same. And it's unfortunate that, that even in the last year or two, we can see so many, way too many people in mainstream media, in the public eye, that have gotten one and two right, but have completely derailed on three. Both people inside the church and outside the church, and not to name any names, but it's unfortunate, it's, it's really too easy for you to just go look it up in Google right now. People that do one, two, and not three. And there's something we need to know about these three elements, okay, that kind of helps us with grappling that tension, okay? First is in this desire to know God, that desire is built in. Everybody has a, has a desire to know God. Eternity is written in the hearts of all men. There's a curiosity and a desire to know, which stems from the desire to know God. 
Thomas Aquinas, one of the formal scholars, theologians in the Middle Ages, he wrote a, what we'll call a book called Summa Contra Gentiles, which is basically just a, a composition of apologetics or a defense for the faith in a time when this enlightenment idea of logic over faith was on the rise. Okay? And he actually argued that they don't necessarily have to conflict with each other, but one fulfills the other. Okay? That your faith actually identifies and determines logic. Okay, and in that, in his third book, he writes, besides, there is a naturally present in all men the desire to know the causes of whatever things are observed. And therefore, man naturally desires as his ultimate end to know the first cause. But the first cause of all things is God. Therefore, the ultimate end of man is to know God. See, that's hardwired. Okay, people, people are curious. Look at kids. Oh, my gosh. You, you hide things, they find it. You lock things, they get in. Okay, we have a general, natural curiosity to figure things out, and the, that comes from the deep burden to want to figure out who God is. The second one, the desire to love God, is also natural. Okay, it is built in, and because of sin in this broken world, it's normally misdirected. But that doesn't take away the weight of it and the reality of it actually still being there. And I don't think this needs a whole lot of discussion to go into. And I think we can understand that plainly. What we like, we love. That's it. Another word for that is worship. What we like, we worship. And, and on this side of heaven, that could look as beautiful as, you know, your relationship with your spouse. Okay, which is actually a picture of Christ in his church, right? So that can be a beautiful, what we love. We love the church. We love people. We love our, our spouses and all the sacrificial stuff that goes on there to, to put them above yourself. That could be absolutely beautiful in, in terms of the love and the worship that's there, that's built in, that's innate. Or it could be as ugly as the relationship you have with this thing. What, what intrigues us, what we want, what we desire, we love and we worship. So to the, the, the desire to know God, the desire to love God, those things are built in. But again, it's this last one that, that we get hung up on. The desire to obey God is, in fact, not built in. We have a desire to rebel. Again, look at kids. You don't have to look at just You can look at my kids. Don't do that. They do that. Like, they, there's... You can see it. And Paul speaks to this uh, when he wrote, writes to the Corinthians uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image of God from glory to glory. And this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the peace that we cannot do on our own. We can have a desire to know God that's just built in. We're going to have a desire to love God and be loud about it. That's built in. But you have to be transformed if you're going to obey God. And this is the hard part of this tension because we know that what's also natural is sin. We we naturally sin. That is our, our nature. But sin is inevitable, and John is telling us right here, but it's not excusable. God advocates for you. But as you love him, as you know him, it needs to lead to a transformation that comes outside of yourself. It's evidence that the Holy Spirit is actually in you, working and doing something which makes you obedient. You just can't figure out how to be obedient. 
And if it's not clear already, John is not advocating for a works-based salvation. He is advocating that all of these three are real, showing an evidence of what's already happening inside. Let's continue. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the message that you have already heard, yet I am writing you a new command. I like the ESV actually says something. This, he's, the, the ESV says, um, uh, but at the same time. So at the same time, it's old, but it's also new. He puts them together. I'm writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, but hates his brother, is in darkness until Now, the one who loves his brother remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And again, he goes into, he he does this ebb and flow of encouraging and and really strong and really harsh to, to kind of encouraging, to strong and harsh in this ebb and flow because that's kind of how the relationship is, okay? We, we sin, we don't sin, we, we want to sin, we, we don't want to sin. But John is, again, making sure that we understand that there is an affection, uh, an actual desire for us to succeed, not just to be told we're doing things wrong. Okay, he, he, he wraps everything, what he's saying is in, in an aroma of, of love, which I think we can also learn from. But let's talk about this new old commandment thing. Um, John knows that this truth is not original to him, Okay. We see this, uh, this is illustrated as he, as he continues, um, that this, first of all, had already been written down. He wrote down uh, in the gospel um, where Jesus actually is the first, he said it and John was there. It says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. We know that this is, you know, the, what is the greatest command? Love God and, and love others. This has already been said, this has already been heard, this has already been written. But this in, in itself is also a reference back to the very beginning, back in uh, Leviticus. Oh, did I miss one? That's okay. You can look it up. In Leviticus 19, it says, You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am Yahweh. So there's no excuse. This is not necessarily new. Both the Jews, both the Gentiles, this, is, this has been made plain all the way around. And the reason why this is, he winds up giving such emphasis is because this is evidence that those one, two, and three are there. Because he can't just say, yeah, I know God, I love God, yeah, I obey God. No, there needs to be proof. This flows into his idea, as he talks about, is actually this process of sanctification that he, he clearly puts out there, that there's an authentic knowledge and love of God which produces obedience. It doesn't just happen, because if that were to happen, then why would Jesus need to continue to advocate for us? The obedience grows. It's supposed to intensify. It's supposed to uh, be observable at, at some point. And as that happens, that's where he talks about this uh, uh, love and light and dark and and hate, uh, that the the more we obey God, the more our knowledge of him, the more our love of him, the more obedience it produces. It actually overflows into loving others. And that darkness, that rebellion, it says, then starts to pass away. 
It says that darkness is actually exposed and overcome by the love born and raised in you by God himself. See, John says that obedience cannot simply be attained by loving God alone. Man, people. It may be so much e- Wouldn't it be easier if we just had to love God? If we just had to check off, did you love God today? Yes. Things would be so much easier. You could actually have a checklist. You could just do your thing every day and bam, bam. Forget about people. You just love God. We, I think we could all get there. But people are the true test that the knowledge, love, and obedience are there. And in verses 9 to 11 here is, is essentially our, what we can take in as, a, as an exam, a testing of, of if we really know him, love him, and obey him. So in professing Christ, do you find yourself above others or do you find yourself loving others? Is essentially what he's asking. If you don't know, ask somebody you know. They'll tell you right away if, you, if, you're, miss, if you're making or missing that mark. And then we grab on to to verse 10 here. That the one who loves his brother remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And this is our indication of if we're healthy in our Christian walk. If we're healthy in our faith. If we have a genuine love for others. If we don't, if we find ourselves above others, judging others, um, ridiculing others, judging their faith, the whole plank in the eye thing. If we're there, that's an indicator that something needs to change. Amen? Amen. Continues, I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who was from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong and God's word remains in you and you have had victory over the evil one. There is a clarity here of who John is talking about, but it might take a little more study to figure that out. When I first read this, I'm like, okay, I know we live in, a, in an era where everything needs to be like politically correct and when we say he, we also kind of need to say she, include everybody. Some different b- versions of the Bible do that for you. Uh, so, but, but why is it written here that John is only talking to men? Talking to men, talking to young men, talking to fathers. Why is that the language here? And I kind of struggled with it. I'm like, oh, when I read it, I'm just going to say young men or young women, fathers or mothers. And I'm like, I'm just going to fix it for him. But I don't think we actually need to insult, in, in, insert this. Normally we want to look at the cultural context, what was going on, what was he fighting, but I don't think that's actually necessary here. See, this little excerpt is actually considered a poetic piece from, from John. And while this may not be the only view, it's viable that these titles are actually symbolic of where people are at in their faith. Their level of spiritual maturity. Okay. See, the children are, are those that have new come to the faith that are in need of maturity. And I'm sure you can think of a couple people right now who are in this stage. This has nothing to do with age. This doesn't even have anything to do with how long you've been saved. Okay. The young men being the, the passionate ones that are developing in their maturity. 
And this is a place I think we all want to be the majority of our lives. We want to be growing. We want to be developing. We want to see scripture in in new ways. We want to have a a newer, fresh understanding. We want to know how to execute it better and, and know that we're doing things the right way. And the fathers would be those who have proven their maturity. And to all three of these, he, he speaks um, to his entire church, hopefully. And again with these the fathers, that there's the, the desire to know and love has, in fact, led to obedience and been proven. See, this whole, this whole little section can be boiled down to John is just reminding you of who you are. Everyone has the same starting point of understanding Jesus is God. Jesus is not just part of God. Jesus advocates to you, uh, to the Father, on your behalf. And you're supposed to grow in your obedience in showing that the knowledge and the love is there. And he goes straight from this, church, to reminding us then of what is incompatible with who we are. We can't just, we want to just stay there. We want to just stay, stay understanding and remembering and focusing on all the things that are true about us. I'm a son of God. Uh, I'm, I'm saved. Uh, I'm going to heaven. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, all of those verses, we just want to remember that. And it's even hard to do that sometimes when, we've, when we feel like we've messed up, when we've sinned, uh, when things aren't going our way. It's hard to remember that. So we put so much emphasis in remembering who we are. Whole sermons and, and series and uh, um, Bible studies are meant to, to show you that you can remember in any circumstance who you are. But that's incomplete if we don't also remember what's incompatible with who we are. We can't merge the two. We can't remember everything that's true about us. And let's take a little piece of that and just put it right in there. John goes right into that. He doesn't stay on there reminding them of who they are, but goes straight into reminding them of what is incompatible with who they are. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. One who does God's will remains forever. And this world can have two understandings, okay? We, we, two sides of the same coin. First, we have, we have the world that God created. Okay, we have creation. We're supposed to look at creation and be in awe, right? So that's not, that can't be what we're talking about. But the other side of that coin is all that is subject to Satan's rule, to Satan's influence. And that exists all around us. Unfortunately, like it did here, that has started to creep into the church, okay? So looking for this interpretation, we go to verse 16. John fixes our attention on these three things. The lust of the eyes is first. Well, it's what I put first. And the lust of the eyes is, is what we can be convinced of that we want, what we can be convinced of that we desire, what we, convinced us that, what we can be convinced of that's going to satisfy or bring us closer to something or get us closer to where we want to go. And, and the most basic example, we go back to the very beginning with Eve. She was deceived by what she saw first. 
Then he talks about the lust of the flesh. And these are our normal tendencies, our built-in dispositions uh, to, to obtaining satisfaction. And the pride of life being our innate desire to take care of ourselves, to figure it out on our own, to rely on you instead of relying on God. These are the things that are incompatible with who we are. Don't forget about who you are. Don't forget that you've been saved. Don't, be, don't forget that your salvation was bought at a price and Jesus continues to go on your behalf because you continue to mess up. Don't forget that, but you need to remember and be vigilant against all those things that are incompatible. While this isn't a complete list, uh, this describes every kind of wickedness that does exist. And John is clearly, affectionately, with as much passion as he can muster up. He's, he's, he's at the end of his life here. Okay? His, the, the, the likelihood is that the rest of his generation is already gone. And he's still here. God still has more work for him to do. But instead of being bitter that he came up in the greatest generation... The generation that saw and touched and walked along with Jesus, instead of being bitter that the new younger church is messing up, he is being affectionate and lovingly pleading with them, remember this. He's warning that there is no future in all those things you hold dear about this world. And it ends with a promise. That obedience, when it's finally produced in your life because of your desire to know God and desire to love God, you will, in fact, remain forever. So, Christian, here's the, here's the question. Is God, in fact, evidenced in your life? Is he evidenced by, by the knowledge you so want to have of him? Is he evidenced by the love you, you desire and display that you have for him? Is he evidenced in your obedience? And we... As we saw, obedience isn't just checking out the box and doing what's in the Bible. It means loving others. Is God evidenced? Do you find yourself simply proclaiming God's existence? Let's start there. Are you just loud about God? Do you, are, do you bank everything on just knowing that God exists? Because as we read in Scripture, even the demons do that. And even better for them, they tremble at the reality of God. Do you, do you withhold your love for others to only be for you, those in your immediate circles? Those that love you back? Your friends, your family? Is that who you love, your, your animals? Is that who you re- reserve your love for and not for others? Because in church it's too hard, people are, are kind of fake, people say thoughtless things. Do you reserve your love for others? Because even the unbelievers do that. We read that in Luke 6. It says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So we still haven't made it if that's where we are. Or does a desire to know him move you to a passion to love him, which produces obedience that overflows into loving others, radiating the light of Jesus that in fact passes the darkness away? Because only his children do that. Church, this is not an easy topic. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of encouragement. There's a lot of uh, rebuke. There's a a lot of um, uh, uh, warning. 
But John here is affectionately reminding you both of who you are and who you can't be. You cannot know and have a desire to know and a desire to love that isn't matched with a desire to obey. And that's the hard truth of this morning. So this is, a, this is an exam. This is a time for you, for reflection, to ask yourself, where are you? Dearly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your, your word and your text and the harsh reality that we need to be willing to come to uh, this kind of exam of testing of where we're at. And maybe even be willing to be transformed a little bit. Lord, would we not be a church, would we not be a people that are only concerned with the knowledge of you and a love for you with no regard for obedience for you? Lord, and keep us from being too eager and willing to see if other people are matching up to that. Let us only be concerned with ourselves this morning. Let us only be concerned with how much we have been brought to our knees in conviction to obey you. Lord, continue to transform us to have an authentic love for others. Lord, we don't want to walk away this morning liars. And we also don't want to walk away this morning discouraged, Lord. For, so would you bring us to be children, young men, fathers in, in the faith? Would you bring us to want more? Want more knowledge of you? Want more love? Want to be more obedient? Would we not be able to quench that thirst, Lord? Would we, in fact, walk away your children? We thank you. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.